The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Okay. Thank you, everybody, for getting back punctually and back in your seats ready for carrying on because we've got a big afternoon. And uh, I'll hand it over to Buck Harrison here, um, who's going to talk to us about his career in the Air Force, um, first as a groundie and then as a helicopter crewman. So, Buck. 
Thanks, Dave. Dave asked me a few months ago if I could give a talk on being a criminal in the Iroquois. And after agreeing, I thought, I've never done anything like this before. So this is a bit of a first for me. So This talk is uh, basically in two parts. The first is a brief background on my Air Force career, trying to, uh, applying for air crew, and then the actual course and what it entails to be a qualified crewman. Because not many people did, and I certainly didn't as ground crew. I thought crewmen just hung out the door of the helicopter and waved to people, looking good. <laughs> certainly wasn't. <coughs> the second second part of uh, my wee talk is selection of the different roles and tasks that we carried out, um, mostly from when I was operating out of Wurgram from police support to search and rescue, that sort of thing, and just a few of my experiences on that. Um, just as an aside, most of you probably know, but the 14 Iroquois the Air Force had um, were retired in 2015 after 49 years. They want to hang on to them for one more year for 50th. Um, I joined the Air Force in January 1973 at Woodburn Air Base in Blenheim as an airframe mechanic under training. After qualifying the following year, I was posted to Haki working on Dakotas, Strike Masters. Now, it's a young 21-year-old checking oil on a strike master at a, a camp in Tauranga. He used to go away and attend camps for flying training. I think I was pretty hungover in that photo just caught me. <laughs> and after that, I worked on the Skyhawks for a year, um, deploying uh, for um, a month-long stint in Singapore and Malaysia um, on exercise, which is quite good. You notice... Osh would have a ball with that photo now. <laughs> <laughs> Got the job done. No helmets, no harnesses, no ladders, no yeah, Sa no safety person. Um, apart from a six months airframe fitness course at Woodburn, I remained at a hark here until 1982 when I was posted here to Wigram as a sergeant working on CD4 air trainers and Iroquois. Being associated with the Iroquois and its crews and being on call-out crew out of ours, I was one of the uh, NCOIC of um, out-of-hours call-out crew we had to get the aircraft here, um, was usually for search and rescues or emergencies. Uh, I realised these guys were doing jobs for real and not just training flying that I, that I was used to with the Skyhawks and Strike Masters, that sort of thing. I went on a few away jobs with the Iroquois. Some of the crew members persuaded me then to apply for helicopter crewmen because I said, this is a bloody good job. But they only took him and air crew up to 26 years old, and I was 32. But 26 plus GST is 32. So <laughs> that's what I tried to... No GST then, unfortunately. Um... <clears throat> After letters, interviews and a fairly intensive air crew selection board, fairly intensive, I was selected for training in July 1990 <coughs> after an M&Air crew course at Wigram here, which involved air traffic control procedures, aerodynamics, mass meteorology and a stint on the coast doing bush survival with no food for four days. Um, after that, passing that, I was posted to the home of three squadron at Hobsonville in Auckland. There started for me the most intensive three-month course I've ever undertaken. <coughs> it was a little easier for me, the fact I knew most of the pilots, the majority of the younger pilots I saw through the wings course, and Brett Marshall was one of them. 
I remember when he was a snot-nosed little officer cadet. Um, and the older pilots, senior pilots and crewmen, rotated with the helicopters between Hobsonville where they are based and the detachment here at Wigram. We had two, between two and four based here for search and rescue and that sort of thing. So I, when I went up there on my course, I actually didn't walk in on a squadron of guys I didn't know, so it was quite good. I thought I had a good idea what the crewman role was, but not a clue. The course was made difficult for me by the fact I was the only student, so I had no one to compare progress with, which might sound a bit strange, but it is. You come back and if on the other courses, the other crewmen said, oh, I stuffed this, I mean, oh, so did I, so you didn't feel so bad. But I put myself under a lot of pressure too, because it was something I really wanted to do. Um, after a tour with squadron with uh, my instructor, who was the crewman leader, my course started. So I'll just briefly go through what the course entailed, and then we'll get on to, on to a few jobs. With a couple of new pilots and ground crew, we did a two and a half week technical course on the helicopter on all the aspects of the engines, airframes, control systems, fuel systems, hydraulics, etc. Basically all the airframe and engine stuff, and a brief rundown on the avionics. I was then kitted out with my flying clothing, including helmets, survival vests, harness, gloves, boots, overalls, jackets, etc. And I thought, well, I hope I don't fail and have to handle all this, this stuff. I don't want to keep it. Prior to starting the flying phase of my training, I was fortunate to be sent on a few away trips as an observer and a crewman. This gave me a bit of an appreciation um, of how the crew operated together and what they actually did or didn't do. To give you a brief idea what a crewman's job is, so this is what you're striving to, um, to qualify for, to give you a brief idea of what a crewman's job he is responsible to communicate to the pilot clear and concise clearances of the main rotor, tail rotor, underside of the aircraft, underslung loads and winch loads. Because remembering the tail rotor is 50 feet behind the pilots, they don't know where the, where the tree is, but that's why you often see, um, even on the Air Force's new NH-90 choppers now, you see the guys hanging out on their harnesses, steering. They're actually talking to the pilot, saying you'll come close in the five o'clock with six outside on the tree. You know, so you draw a picture to the pilot of what's, what's around them, particularly in confined areas in the trees, which I'll mention shortly. Um, he's responsible for operating the aircraft's um, rescue winch. And that's the rescue winch there. It's got a pendant that the crewman operates with his thumb. While he's hanging on the wire, you see the Montelli and that sort of thing. This is different to the modern ones in the sense that you could boom it out and boom it back in and close the doors. It wasn't hanging out. The modern choppers, of course, most of the winches are bolted to the outside of the airframe anyway. And the poor crewman's got to stand right outside the aircraft, as you see on the west. At least we knelt in the doorway, we could roll backwards if you know the queen wrong. Um, he's also responsible for the cargo personnel and any other items located in the cargo compartment. So that's a, basically a loadmaster's job, dropping down, working out the way to balance, etc. Basically anything behind the pilot seats, as I used to tell them to get out of my, get back in your part. Responsible for keeping SAR watch open on the HF radio when we're operating away from base every 30 minutes, particularly up in the hills. I'd call up and say, Air Force Wigram, um, Eric Wee 09, is uh, operations normal? 
two miles to the south of Kamara, call again in three zero minutes. They go, Roger, listening out. Zero Roger. Roger. Be careful what I say in front of the communications. So, um, you're responsible for keeping the watch. For this knowledge, we commenced my, my flying training after some time in the classroom. And this is where it got to be fun. I think I lost about 20 kilos over the next few weeks. The first part that got you was you tell the pilot where to position the aircraft. He, he positioned it, particularly once again in confined areas. And the first part was you learning to talk, the talk, to do it. And there's big squares out on the airfield at Hobsonville. <coughs> um, and I had to talk him backwards, and then he'd try and drift away to one side, so I have to stop that drift and get him back on the line. Sounds easy. There's a new language that both pilots and crewmen had to learn, and it was called patter. Now, every pilot and every crewman has to say the same words. You clear right, right one, you've got three under, clear forward and down. You can't say, come over a bit, right, oh, whoop, stop there. You know, it's, if, there can't be any confusion, especially when you've got trees a foot outside your main rotor with trunks on them like that. So everyone must use the standard SOP, um, standard operating procedure phraseology, as there's no misinterpretation of the person giving the clearances. As I progress to the instructions, the instructor satisfaction, every second flight you did, if you did okay on that flight, you go solo, and then the pilots would talk you through it and help you to improve. So then the next flight was back with the instructor. So every second flight's with the instructor. Um, we moved back in, we then moved from a big open airfield um, into basic confined areas which is basically a hole in the trees. Um, where I didn't only talk the aircraft left or right or backward forward, we had trees around the rotor and underneath it to worry about. My first attempt, I thought we'd never get the aircraft into that small hole in the trees and land without hitting every tree in there. Later, I realised you could fit four helicopters in there. <laughs> I was sitting there looking at these trees. but Okay, progressively as my pattern improved, you knew what you wanted to say to, to manoeuvre the aircraft, but you had to then think about what you're supposed to say according to the book, and sometimes the aircraft got away ahead of you and you're like, So events seem to overtake you as you try to stammer out distances and remember what you're supposed to say. Um, all these advanced flights were then carried out at Riverhead State Forest, just north of Hobsonville, from the area in Auckland. There was an abundance of tricky landing pads at Riverhead. Um, and just to, let's add a three-dimensional now. We'll hang a cargo net with four 44-gallon drums and hang it off the, cargo, uh, off the cargo hook 20 feet beneath you. So you're not just worried about the trees. You've got a bloody load, so you're lying, hanging your head underneath, seeing where the load's got to go and watching the trees all at once. So it's pretty three-dimensional. The biggest challenge though was on return to base you had to position the load onto a small pallet half the time with an audience of crewmen watching to see how many attempts it took to put it squarely back on the pallet which is about the same size as the load. So fall off, huh? fall, baby, fall off. Will you hold this thing in a hover for God's sake? <laughs> this was the phase of the course where I failed an advanced underslung load flight out in the forest. Everything went wrong on that flight. My distances, heights, everything. I had to have a refly, and if I'd failed that, I was off. So as I see here, no pressure. <coughs> Fortunately, all went well, and I moved on to the last and very demanding part of the course, the winch operator's course. 
Now this was essentially a separate course as all the newly qualified Iroquois pilots had to do it as well. Because as you'll hear later, sometimes the crewmen who normally operate it had to ride the wire with a co-pilot climb over the back and operate the winch. So the pilots had to be up to complete a fully qualified winch operators course as well. So then they got to learn just how much work there was that the crewmen did down the back. So it was quite good. Um, once again, you started basically on the airfield and they had a small triangular um, device because they wouldn't give you a live person on, on your first attempt. Um, certainly not using live person as you learnt to use your winch pattern and position the winch hook in the right place and also learning the winch itself, it's different cable speeds, you know, it's a whole new piece of equipment while you're still trying to remember what you're supposed to be saying in the correct manner. Um, the third training sortie was dedicated to emergencies, which was essential to be able to deal with before winching people. The main winch emergencies to deal with were winch, <coughs> winch stoppage and runaway winch, neither of which is ideal, and I've had both, <laughs> for real, in bad weather conditions in the mountains. Um, therefore, this training went straight to it. The winch stoppage was simulated by the co-pilot pulling the main winch circuit breaker and the runaway was simulated by the captain's winch control on his control column, which override the winch operator's one. So you're busy winching out, next month the winch is coming in, you're going, what? The captain's up here, dealing to you. Um, so basically the first thing you did was just call runaway winch out, winch stoppage, they pull the circuit breaker, we have a discussion, there's a guy hanging on the winch going, what's going on up here? <laughs> or a guy on the ground getting covered in winch cable with a runaway winch coming in. Um, first thing is called emergencies, successfully passing emergencies, next phase was to use live, willing or unwilling victims. Uh, once again, back to the basic confined areas. And it didn't help with my first winch sortie in the advanced forest series. My survivor on the, way, on the wire was my crewman leader and instructor. And the deputy lead, crewman leader was sitting beside me, writing furiously in his notebook. So finally the next phase was at the, at the sea in the upper harbour. This was quite interesting. Deck winching. It's gone sleeping. That's actually on the ferry in the Marlborough Sound. Deck winching and then wet winching. We used the Navy's patrol craft for deck winching and used our own crewmen in wetsuits for wet winching. So we'd fly along at 10 feet and boot them out and then we'd do a circuit and then set up the winch and come in and pick them up again. Which sounds easy but uh, with the rotor wash we make a circuit, attempt to get the rescue strop right beside them otherwise the rotor wash would sweep the the strop away from them and they couldn't get at it. So that was, you had to bang it straight and beside them. Deck winching was interesting as you were winching onto a moving vessel. And while we were playing in the sea, during underslung load training, we carried out monsoon bucket training, both sea dunking to fill them up and land filling from fire tenders. So there's quite a few pretty versatile aeroplane. The crewman operates the bucket's valve, which there's a pneumatic valve and you're lying on your stomach out the door and you see the fire coming out and you go, bombs away. And flying on the floor looking out the door, you almost feel like a bomb aimer. Mid-course, other requirement was for the crewman to qualify. You've got to remember 
what we're there for, not just search and rescues. Uh, to qualify as a door gunner operating the M60 7.2mm door guns, which I can say was terrible fun. We flew several aircraft up the Kuiper Air Weapons Range on the west coast north of uh, We spent most of the day resuiting the qualified crewmen and getting me qualified. Also reefer mill and qualifying for the pilots. And then we did a few days of night flying, which only limited now, which I've done night vision goggle flying. You did everything, winching under sun loads, confined areas on goggles. And it's very hard because you've got no peripheral and checking trees and it's pretty hard work. One requirement for a crewman was to qualify as the winchman, which I mentioned, not only as a winch operator. This involved riding the wire with a strop and, as mentioned earlier, retrieving a survivor either on the strop or a stokes litter basket. With all this, the day finally arrived. My catchy. If I pass this, with a squadron CO as the captain, the crewman leader, a crewman, as winchman, we headed out with an underslung load to the riverhead forest. And there began the longest one and a half hours of my life. I think I sweated about three gallons in that area. Now. I felt I'd done reasonably well, and when we landed, the CO shook my hand and said, it wasn't so hard, was it? <laughs> Finally, I had a gruelling 30 minutes of oral questions from my instructor, anything from technical questions, operational questions, standard operating procedures. Following that, he told me I was a qualified CCAT professional crewman. So that was, yeah, three and a half months full on. I flew up to two or three flights a day, which doesn't sound much, but when your brain is being scrambled the whole time, it's pretty hard. A few days later at a small ceremony that went up, Auckland Base Commander Pinmod Crewman Brevet on my chest, I finally realised I'd achieved something I'd always wanted to do. And after qualifying, many other specialist training and qualifying courses were added. Counter-terrorism and SAS work involving fast roping, sniper, later qualifying on night fishing goggles. It's all pretty demanding work. Right, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The next, the next part here I'll whiz through. A few photos hopefully you'll like. Um, on the different roles we performed, the different taskings we performed. Obviously the first thing you've got to remember the role is, is army support, you know, battlefield support. It's um, look familiar, Paul? Yeah, Wiberia. Um, <coughs> there's many roles for the um, in the army support. We did mainly immobile troop moving. You know, multiple aircraft, inserting troops, extracting troops from the field, different zones, and we have operating procedures. We could. Uh, contour load fly at 20 feet, and at 20 feet at uh, 200k an hour is good fun. Oh no, it's serious, isn't it? That's right. Tikpo, um, most of it was conducted at Waiuru or Tikpo military camp. However, in 1991 there was a major excise based at Timaru Airport, and the whole air airfield was secured. They had barbed wire around the whole airport, the army, machine guns, the whole nine yards, but we were sent up, which was terrible, up to the neck at Lake Harwear. It was a Ford positioning post. I spent half the day swimming in the lake. It was the middle of summer. It was great. Um, and operations were carried in, off in the hills around there. It was quite a quite amazing exercise because 
when we, when we landed, we were tasked to land in Oteira, Martha's Pass, and we were greeted with placard-waving people, out military, out military, and it was all part of the scenario. And, uh, well, this is something different. And next minute we're told we can't refuel the other tank. And we said, why not? It's sitting right there. And they said that we've just slapped a sticker on it in the scenario. These guys are just blowing it up so you can't go anywhere. <laughs> oh, bugger. Sat down with a smoke or two for half an hour until they released us. But, yeah, it was quite interesting because more and more military are, are going into the, like, the, the civilian thing rather than just battlefield armies versus armies. It's more like the Afghanistan type scenario. Um, also worked with the SAS, the Black Roll, which is the anti-terrorist troop. Just one photo there. That was taken near Lake Harwear. You can see um, three sets of boots there. I'd rigged it for three stretch casualties, which I'll mention later come, comes with it. That's my machine gun on the side. I normally sit in the corner. And the troops look a bit stressed in there, loading and unloading stuff. So, um, yeah, the Black Roll getting on to another army support. This is an anti terrorist involved sniping from aircraft, fast roping onto buildings and ships, and even onto an aircraft wing. Um, at 3 a.m. in the morning at Mangaree, we fast roped, um, I can't say too much, uh, 767 at Mangaree, which is full of hostages, which were. Hostesses, pilots, and that, and the guys hold, being holding them hostage inside were actually SAS guys themselves. So it was a full-on hostage situation. This, a lot of people don't know this goes on. It goes on all the time. It's quite exciting work, and the SAS were very bloody old and dead. We're on their side. Put it that way. In 1991. The SAS conducted an exercise at Littleton, which involved politicians being taken hostage. And I thought, well, why are they trying to release them? Leave them there. Why are we flying all the way to Auckland to release the politicians? We flew four aircraft from Auckland to Christchurch. We had little info and believed it was the real thing until a SAS briefing at Littleton Yacht Club. All the yacht club windows were all covered up with um, sheets and the whole nine yards. It was real secret squirrel stuff. Revealed it was an exercise. Involved night SAS insertion by land and sea to the island. And one large army exercise we held was in Townsville in Australia for a month. Some of that we spent out Mount Garnet and Ainsley, way out in the Aussie outback. And the thing that I've written down here is it's the biggest troop move I've been involved in. Um, there was 12 Black Hawks, three Iroquois gunships, three of our Iroquois, Two big Chinooks and three Kyoas, so 23 aircraft information. But after a while, the Black Hawks just went <laughs> gone. The crinky button. Right. What have we got next? The biggest thing at the debt, which I alluded to, was search and rescue, and that took up a lot of our time here. And that was one of the main reasons the police wanted, to, wanted us to stay here. We were called first by the police if there's missing people because um, we could stay on scene for, for days, weeks if they wanted us to, whereas the Westpac chopper is more of an air ambulance, you know, go and pick up an injured person. Back. So most of my search and rescues conducted at 3D at Wigram. We averaged in the three years I was here, one to two a week, and could be anywhere in the South Island, and you could be away for days. In February 94, a German tourist went missing near Tuatapri in Fjordland. We flew 32 hours and three and a half days, which is quite a lot of flying. 
because you're on, and that's not including refueling and all the rest of it. I did 120 100 plus foot winches, inserting and extracting search teams, but sadly his body was recovered. He had tried to cross the Swollen River when he lost his life. Something slightly different, but Westpac would have done. In February 1995, we attended a serious car crash near Castle Hill, near Arthur's Pass. A woman pulled from a burning van. I rigged the aircraft lot before with three stretches. We had medics from the town, and we flew the serious engine to Christchurch Hospital. In October 96, we searched for two days in freezing weather for two missing climbers on top of Mount Aspiring. We spotted an SOS in the snow uh, and, and got, managed to winch them out because we couldn't tell if the ground was sloping behind the tail if we were landing, so I leaked it to winch them out. In near whiteout conditions, we only just got them out. It's the first time I've had a man hug in the back of the helicopter. <laughs> he was crying because they'd been sheltering in a crevasse for two days and very seriously hypothermic. So that was so satisfying. This is different. We also picked up three very ill Russian seamen from Westport who had been drinking methanol. <laughs> I'll never forget the sickly sweet smell from their breath all the way back to Christchurch. Sadly, one passed away and one lost his sight. Um, there's two or three other ones here. Um, there's a myriad of search and rescues, but you get the rough idea. Um, it, it could be all sorts of call out. Um, I got winched into the sea off the Rakai River mouth with a white baiter who got swept away, and of course, with a buoyant um, waders, tipped his head under. So we didn't have a paramedic. I didn't have my wetsuit on, but I went down the water <laughs> and recovered the body. So. Uh, what is that? that one there is um, near Harry Harry. Sadly, a climber fell. 600 odd feet and wasn't in very good shape. And that's, um, well, that's me in the doorway. Our second home, Arthur's Pass, we've always been called up there. Um, a, another Israeli tourist fell 150 feet, 15 stories down a rock face. I rode the wire again because we didn't have a medic with us, we're on another task. Um, and police support, here's another one here on several occasions. On several occasions we carried armed defenders squad and dogs police call out throughout the country, more often than you realise. As it was a quick way to get them to remote areas in particular. A large scale search near Turingi with two Iroquois for three days in August 91 for two murders. A local vet was quite intensive including dawn raids. I've got quite a bit about it. Um, other ones... Uh, we did a dawn raid on the farmhouse up near Altham in New Plymouth with armed defenders squad on board because some bad black power boys had stolen firearms from New Plymouth and the police wanted them back. <laughs> they did the, the, Exactly, but the funny thing is, if, if you're in the hills, which they were, and not, we've even done it in the mountains, you, the boys are coming and you don't know which direction they're coming from, but, but you're right. Um, dock support is something else we did a lot of. Government department... At Wigger we provided significant regular support to DOC, particularly in the Mount Cook region. Some of the tasks I was involved in was from underslinging loads of hut wreckage, uh, which was destroyed in, in an avalanche, um, moving huts to new locations, resupplying huts, underslinging 44-gallon drums of gravel to make a new um, footpath in the swampy area. And this one here was a DOC job in Stuart Island. We recleared our huts with the Army engineers, um, 
carrying duck boards for swampy area, plywood for huts, all that sort of thing. That's Ryan Creek's airstrip at Stuart Island. But the only thing I didn't enjoy about Stuart Island there is flying across Cook Strait or Fogo Strait in a single engine helicopter. Right. And that's um, base Mount Cook, carrying some timber up to a hut. Yeah, tough old bird. And you can just see on the left hand side the top of my head sticking out. Um, that load started to swing quite wildly. That was up in Nelson Lakes area. Monsoon bucketing. We often involved with the local fire service around the country to carry up monsoon bucket training. This one here was in Elpre Forest near Kaitaia in 92. That's me hanging out the door again. And it was such a wonderfully hot day, they asked us to deposit the water back into the storage um, reservoirs. But they were standing between the reservoir and us. And it was a hot day, and the captain said, they look really hot, so I dumped a thousand litres of water. <laughs> right. The big snow in 92, as we all remember. The South Island was hit with a large dump of snow. We had several... Several Iroquois based on annual mountain flying camp up at Dip Flat and Nelson Lakes. And we were all then tasked to fly support from farmers from Marlborough to Fairley. We took two aircraft to Fairley, staying at the pub. They bulldozed a clear little snow away opposite the pub so we could land the two choppers here. It was really good. Um, spent the next few days flying snow rakers and dogs and hay to the stock stranded on the hills. With the aircraft stripped out, I managed to fit 30 standard bales of hay in the cabin. Well, mostly in the cabin. <laughs> and I could only cut one twine on them, because if you cut both and push them out, because the sheep were in deep holes like this, and you fly over a hover taxi and just push it out, but the rotor wash just from that thing just blew it all away, so I left one. That's how we treated them, but... Um, we're, yeah, so I fitted 13 in the cabin and 16 underneath in the cargo net and there was a little Hughes or something flying around carrying five at a time, <laughs> charging, <laughs> charging the farmers lot. And that previous fader we underslung four cattle beasts which were, which were uh, stuck in a gully. Now most of the snow, most of the areas obviously not there down on the flat was over two metres deep. So, right. It's certainly not Christchurch. In June 92, the squadron deployed to Fali Airport in Western Samoa following a devastated cyclone. And we also doubled, as we have to do every year, tropical flying training. The aircraft operates not so well in hot, humid climates. <coughs> and in July 93 and 6, combined again with local aid flying, rebuilding materials, particularly to the highlands in Fiji and a couple of outlying islands. Unusually in awkward loads was about that I had to pack was 20 toilet bowls for a school. Now, they're all round, and every time you try and stack them and pull the strop down, I haven't got a photo, but we also supported geologists scientists on White Island from Auckland. We'd fly out, they'd do their thing for the day. They noted that there was fishing rods, the aircrew had stuck under the seats, so we went fishing while they did volcanologist stuff. Right. Oh, shit, I'm actually doing some work, Paul. <laughs> well, supervising. 
Mm. All right, police support, cannabis recovery. <laughs> one of the cops did a floral. One of the cops did a floral display while we're having lunch. Why are you all grinning so much? <laughs> over the last, over the three years, I was involved with the police in several cannabis recoveries during the summer months throughout the South Island. Some people think we just fly around trying to find it. You know, just flying around looking for the green patches. It's not like that at all. The police actually plan the ops with location info from farmers, trampers, hunters, helicopter operators and other sources. They all send the information to the cops. The site's normally located near a road on a sunny facing area and close to a water source. There often ingenious attempts to camouflage it, but from the air it didn't work. I've been asked how we disposed of huge piles of plants. <laughs> and said that it was in a very large bonfire, usually in a paddock. Asked if we all stop, stood downwind of the smoke, I suggested inhaling smoke from a fire started with 100 litres of aviation kerosene is not a pleasant smell. Yes, we have tried it. <laughs> the, police put us, the police put us up in terrible accommodation like the Edgewater Resort in Wanaka, the Aspen on Queenstown. Well, we're all taxpayers. Yes. Yeah. The seeds work really well hanging out the door of the helicopter. <laughs> mine. Mine. <laughs> I was soaking wet there. That was a funny old thing, the West Coast, but by hell it grows well. One event sticks to mind when we were near the Roaring Meg near Queenstown, power station in the Quarra Gorge, people don't know. The police and cars on the ground see the Harley Davidson with a passenger clutching a pile of canvas came flying out of the bush and was heading towards Queenstown. So we came down, flew along the gorge beside it, and the policemen on the helicopter were waving to them. The pilot and passenger waved back with single-digit waves. <laughs> we were asked to be a rotary roadblock further up the road, so it was a different use for an Iroquois. When the bike appeared around the corner, they were confronted by two large policemen and behind them a big green helicopter, right in the middle of the road. Um, the look on their faces was priceless. One of our ground crew was in the police chase car. We often took the groundies away with us. Um, and he thought it was great fun. <laughs> While in Tianao, we got a call that a cross-country skier, missing since winter, this is in January, was found above the Homer Tunnel once the snow had melted. He was lying on black rock and it was 35 degrees. While the police, we dropped off together the remains into a body bag, we took in a scenic flight to the Milford Sound before picking up the police and body bag. That was a great 40th birthday present. <coughs> right, we're nearly there. Oh. <laughs> I just put it out. <laughs> That's at Glenorchy, you feel. Well, you, you're flat paddock at Glenorchy. All right. I was very fortunate to fly to Antarctica on two occasions, both for about a month over the summer months in 92 and 97. Our main task was to provide transport for both New Zealand and Scott Base, American and McMurdo Station, and ferrying their science teams 
and equipment to various locations on Ross Island and across the dry valleys of the continent. In 92, the American helicopters were all grounded for, for a particular reason, so they sent an urgent call to New Zealand for two helicopters. So we had two down there. We ferried them down in a stretch C-141 Starlifter, along with the crew and ground crew. The highlight of my second trip was in 97, the 40th anniversary of Scott Base. 40 Squadron Hercs flew the Prime Minister... the Prime Minister Bolger and wife Sir Edmund Hillary and George Lowe who did most of his trips um, with uh, Sir Ed and various dignitaries to Scott Base. The next day we took them flying around the place. I'll just briefly go through it. Um, after they all went home, there was a celebration of the 40th anniversary of Scott Base. Sir Ed, a documentary producer and his cameraman, we landed on Mount Erebus and were taken in a huge crevasse, which was amazing. Following that, we flew across to the Ross Ice Shelf and landed on the top of the Skelton Glacier, which you'll see Sir Ed, George Lowe up there. Jim Barclay, you're talking about second from the left at the back pool. Um, some goober on the far right with a black hairband. That's outside um, Scott's hut at Cape Evans on Ross Island. That there is actually 10,000 feet um, of ice above sea level. That's the tops of 10,000 foot mountains sticking out. And what people didn't realise, Scott and his crew towing their sleds and that had to get to 10,000 feet before they started the trip to the South Pole. And I've worked at 10,000 feet and you're <laughs> puffing. So, yeah, that's, sorry going back. Now, Way down in the distance, that's where Sir Ed took two weeks to get up to our spot with his massive Ferguson tractors back in 57, 56, 57 expedition. And he was surprised that it took us one hour to get there from Scott Baseball Helicopter. I've great memories from down there. Um, there's one thing we used to do is fly out into McMurdo Sound on the sea ice as it's slowly melting. And we'd land about 500 metres from it and we'd walk out and... Uh, the orcas were coming out from about me to you away. Of course they were coming out having a look. There's food there. <laughs> um, air shows, just what Andy was talking about before. Um, I participated in a big air show in Auckland years ago. Wings of Wheels for Nuapai Wigram. Warbirds over Wanaka in 96. Um, RNZ of support in October 93. The Mackie Jet trainer crashed in the mangroves near Kaitaia following an engine failure. Two aircoils were deployed. We went to the Navy base in Auckland, uplifted Navy divers and massive airbags for lifting the helicopter. Its recovery was an aircoil lifting it, taking the weight, with a boat towing it at high tide. Oh, there's yeah. oh, another couple of jobs. Oh, just one last one, if it may. Um, we had an Iroquois down in um, Preservation Inlet supporting the Navy recharging the waters on the old Monowai, which is now gone. And they had a chip light in the engine. They pulled it out and it had massive gear chunks on the magnetic chip detector and said, well, we won't fly after this. So we flew from here, flew down a spare engine, the ground crew, and we did an engine change. And they pinched our aircraft to take it. So we did a lot of fishing for a day or two. 
the engine change crew had some parts needed flown from Christchurch to pick uh, engine parts flown from Christchurch to Invercargill Airport and they wanted us to fly from Fiordland to pick up these parts needed for the engine change. Um, so we said, yeah, right, we'll do it. And the, where we're staying was a lodge, fortunately, where the aircraft had landed. And the lodge owners, fearing that we were drinking their bar dry while we're there, wouldn't be surprised, asked if we could pick up some supplies while we were in Invercargill. And we said, leave it to us. And as we got close to Invercargill, we used our police radio and sent a shopping list to the police in Invercargill. <laughs> when we landed, the sight of police unloading the car on the tarmac and filling up the Iroquois with cartons of beer sparked many a puzzled look on the passengers out the terminal window. <laughs> After a couple of days, engine test flight, we came home. So just, just to finish... That's all full of houses now. Just like Wigram. Hobson, Hobsonville, Auckland, for those who don't know. That was the 25th anniversary um, flying. That was bloody hard. It took about a quarter of an hour to do that, and we were up the top end. Not the one out of, out of the water. We, we were, <laughs> but the resulting overflow road wash on the lower aircraft. Uh, but we uh, did a 12 ship across, um, across Auckland. To finish a Wigram closure, it was September the 14th, 1995. This dear old girl was closed. Had a farewell parade here, and as the flag was being lowered for the last time, we flew over in a five aircraft formation for all involved a very sad time. Three squadron detachment remained in the full hangar down there in a control tower building for a few more years. And we watched as the base was demolished around us. It's like someone destroying something of yours. <clears throat> my three-year tour with the debt here at Wigram was finished with my final flight in May 06, 1997, <coughs> rather fittingly on a SAR call-out. I was posted back to the squadron in Auckland, but I opted to leave the Air Force at this point, which was very hard, and remain in Christchurch with my family. I've had a wonderful 25 years with the Air Force and have lifelong friends as a result. I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Any quick questions? Very quick. No, no questions. Little as possible as often as I can. No, I'm, I'm partly, partly retired now. So. What's the full length of the winch? 250 feet, two speed. That's 25 stories. <laughs> so a uh, flat out, 250 foot a minute, which is quite quick if you've just got one person on it. If you've got a person in a stretcher, it uh, goes on low speed and it takes you two minutes. If, if it's spinning, how do you stop it? Sorry? If the stretcher or something is spinning. It's very difficult. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. No, it's, it's one of those phenomena we've tried all sorts of things um, to but it's a real bugger. It's, it's up to the winchman. You just have to go with it until they get to near the skid, and then you slow the winch down and wait till they come around, and then they can grab the skid and steady it, and then, then you can winch them and get them inside. But, yeah, I've seen a few propellers. <laughs> Put the heavy stuff near the back, near the transmission where the rotor head is, uh, we didn't normally work, work them out because, like down the ice, you had boxes of rocks for the geologists and then 
this happened next thing. What we did was put, well I did put most of the, near the rear of the cabin, near the CAG, and then you pick it up in the hover and if it's, oh that's a bit heavy left and put it back down again. So unfortunately, like in fixed wing aircraft, you haven't got that option. Oh, yeah. oh shit, we're tail though. <laughs> Can't get out of here. Yeah. It might leave it there, Dave. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.